welcome to I Got Your Six Podcast. I'm Jesus Pereira, Director of Veteran Services for the City of Holyoke. And just so you know, my name is also Jesus. Yes. And <laughs> just so you know, I call Jesus Chu. Chu. My name is Natalia. I'm the news director at Holyoke Media. You didn't introduce me. Come on. Wow. Natalia, this is, I'm new. I'm green behind the ears okay. or wet behind the ears or whatever it is you say. You're saying. green behind the ears. <laughs> I don't know what the saying is, but I get what you're saying. I'm green and wet behind the ears. How okay. So we were talking about flying and I was asking you, how is it that planes can go up at a steep angle and come down at a steep angle so that the people in the back, usually they're astronauts or, you know, people yeah. who just love not being in gravity explain gravity yeah. i'm one gravitational force what well as we sit here we're, we're sitting at one g is what we will we measure as one gravitational force on us and so whatever our weight is you know for me it's big number because <laughs> i'm short and uh, stout um and as you in, a, in an airplane as you're you're flying and you pull th you know you, you have thrust going you know across and when you pull back, you're pushed down into your seat. And you feel a little heavier. So that's kind of like feeling two or three Gs. So it's multiplying your weight. So what do you mean when you pull back? What's being pulled back? The pilot so is pulling on the, back on what? The, usually on most aircraft, the yoke or a stick is being pulled back. Mm -hmm. And you'll feel the force because now you're accelerating. You're going from a horizontal acceleration mm -hmm. to a vertical. So you're being pushed down into your seat. Mm -hmm. And that doubles your, your weight or triples depending on how hard you pull. But once you get to the top of that climb and you push forward, mm -hmm. The gravitational forces disappear mm -hmm. and actually become negative, which you know you might see people float in the back of like big seven thirty sevens or four mm -hmm. sevens. Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly what's happening. But then, like when we're in a passenger plane, say going to Puerto Rico, let's let's say, the pilot pulls back on the yoke uh, at eighty miles per hour. Oh no, probably a lot faster than that in these in those big planes. I mean, they're going pretty quick, probably one hundred and twenty or thirty. Okay, miles an hour. and then they're pulling back. Yeah, and they're pulling back, and maybe for that split second, you might feel yourself. Well, first of all, when you're at a dead stop or slowed down on the on the runway, you feel them put the thrust in. Yeah, you that's fun. You feel being pushed back. Yeah, in your seat. isn't so that fun when you those, hear it? Those are, that thrust is pushing you back, but when they rotate to go up, you might feel a little like downward force. Yeah. So that's the G's increasing. Now they do it. It's very docile in in, in passenger airplanes. It's they're not they're not there to do any. Uh, and why is it, and why is it called rotate? Because you're literally rotating across the axis of the airplane. The airplane has a center of gravity. Yeah. And if you put a stick through it vertically and then horizontally, yeah, it'll rotate around that axis. Oh my goodness. So when you rotate, we're rotating up. Right. To start climbing out. And then when a passenger plane is taking off, I've seen on the YouTube videos. They pull back the yoke and then just for a couple of seconds and then they go forward and it always looks like, what are you doing, man? You know, <laughs> we're now we're going to go down. And what you're saying is, no, it's like you don't want to go on a too steep a climb because yeah, you can so stall. What happens is you're, you have an elevator in the back of the airplane and uh, as you start barreling down the runway, those elevators uh, become more effective and at a certain speed they rotate. They'll, they'll deflect those elevators into the wind, rotating the plane nose up. But once you get the right angle, you know, want to put those elevators back in a neutral position because mm -hmm. you don't want to keep rotating. Because you can stall. You can stall the airplane. But then, for instance, at the Westfield Air Show, as also we were talking off mic earlier, um, you, we see planes going up vertically. Yeah, and those are amazing machines that have more thrust and weight. So the engines on these particular airplanes have so much thrust. You see them in fighter jets, aerobatic planes. Like they, they have more, more thrust and weight of the aircraft. 
That's so, amazing because the it, aircraft weighs a lot to begin a with. A lot of them do. Those jets, what are they? The F-14s that we saw? Oh, there's a lot. The F-35 was there. I think I wasn't at the air show, but I know that the F-35 was there. Um, I mean, these things use thrust vectoring. I mean, they have an enormous amount of thrust, and they just literally can hover, <laughs> you know? And it's wonderful technology, and, I, and it just... It, what do you mean they can hover? So some of them have... Um, like the Harrier jets, used yeah, to have, they, right. they they used to have these. Um, uh, what do you call them? They're like turrets that are like on the side, and they take thrust from the engine mm-hmm. and point them down and like hover. Right, they're like a, right. They can be like a helicopter. Like a helicopter, yeah. But then they can be a jet and take off. Yeah, it uses a massive amount of fuel though. And what is you're a veteran? You are also a pilot. What is the point of of, of jet fighters going straight up into, you know, going I don't know how many miles per hour straight up? Well, I think the first thing, first and foremost, is when you leave uh, like land-based uh, airports, right? Like you want to get out of range of small arms and, and ah. anything that can shoot at you. Although there's other advanced weapons that can absolutely probably catch you, but you know the idea is get up out of you know the surface as fast as you can. Out of range. Yeah, RPGs and stuff. You want to get away from them. I I read an article the other day that when President Biden went to no, I can't remember what country he went to. All of them. But <laughs> but it's a dangerous country. Sure. So they had to close all the windows of the Air Force One so that no light would leak out. Yep. And then when they were descending, they descended at a very steep angle. Yeah. Why is that? The same reason. You just want to get down as fast as possible. Okay. So typically, you know, when we fly in commercial airplanes, we, we know the most docile envelopes of flying. Mm. We know, like, this, the feeling of thrust and rotating of an airplane and leveling off into, you know, a certain altitude and just staying there. And when we get a little bump, we get, you know, shaken up. But airplanes fly in a much wider envelope than we've ever experienced. You know, we have planes that can go vertical, mm-hmm. come down with no thrust and mm-hmm. be coming at the earth at five, six, seven thousand feet a minute. Like it's something that we don't, we don't experience. Jesus. Exactly. Me. So, <laughs> so that, for instance, at the air show, we also saw like older planes. I don't know what they're called. They're they're there's a, a they're slew. not jets. They no, they they have propellers. Propellers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they do all sorts of acrobatic stuff. And again, is that because their thrust they is greater than their weight? Than the weight. And that's just a rule. That's is that like a physics that's just, rule? That's just physics. That's, that's just physics. If you have enough thrust, you can lift up anything. Oh my goodness! Exactly. Anything. Like mm. in the Olympics, when we see the you know the 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 athletes you know picking up tons of of hundreds of pounds. They're using thrust in that first motion. Absolutely. Look at helicopters when they pick up vehicles or, mm-hmm. or tanks or whatever else that they're picking up, uh, pieces of equipment. Mm-hmm. They cannot only just pick up the weight of the helicopter with the thrust from the main rotor blades, mm-hmm. but other equipment. Like, it's amazing, the wow. amount of weight. So it's a lot of fun. Why did you decide to become a pilot? <laughs> That's a good story. I did it to overcome a fear, mm-hmm. a fear of flying. Um, you know, oh, wow. So that was the, this is the only way I got to learn. Well, there's a lot more to it. So let's go back to when I was a child. In the movie, <laughs> the movie La Bamba was out. Oh, okay. You know, it basically depicts the life of Richie Valens, mm-hmm. but it's really all about uh, the day the music died, right? That's we right, lost, the plane crash in the cornfield. We lost Buddy Holly and the big bopper, I think. See. And, and Richie Valens, there was someone else, I think. But um, The pilot. So, so the intro to that movie mm-hmm. is supposedly Richie Valens in a courtyard, a school courtyard, mm-hmm. with airplane parts falling onto the school courtyard, killing some of the kids in the, in, or injuring some of the kids in the, the courtyard. 
and that just instilled the fear of God in me, like mm -hmm. from flying, uh, to the point where you know I'm, I became a father at 16. At 17, I joined the Mass Guard. I was out in. I graduated high school three days later. I'm in basic training. Holyoke High. Uh, Dean Tech. Dean Tech. Dean Tech kid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when uh, I went, you know, obviously flew to um, to South Carolina. Hated it. Then went to Virginia. You hated South Carolina or you hated flying? I hated flying. Hated flying because I was still afraid of flying at uh, this time. And then how I was that trip, that first trip, that when you went to South Carolina? Do you uh, remember that trip? I th yeah. Was oh, it bumpy? Yeah. Were you, uh, what was scaring well, you about it, that? It, it, it wasn't the flight itself. I think it was like the unknown of what I'm about to get into with the service. Um, but I also hated the flight. <laughs> I wasn't. I just wasn't a fan of, fan of flying. I didn't understand it. didn't understand the physics. What plane were you in? I couldn't tell you. Was it a small plane? No, no, no. It was definitely a commercial plane. Okay. You know, whatever. Right. I was flying out of Bradley at the time. Okay. And uh, Bradley International Airport. Yeah. We fly to Montreal, Canada. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes it international. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to... Anyway, finished basic training. I ended up in AIT in Virginia. That's in, IT. AIT, Advanced Individual Training. It's like when you learn your job in the military. Okay. And I was a knucklehead, you know. It's like <laughs> I had a list of, you know, a mile long of the things I could have done. And then I went down the list and found the thing with the shortest uh, training. <laughs> right? I'm like, oh, nine weeks. I'm going to be a field guy. That's what I'm, I'm going to do with my life. And the... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, graduated from there, and I'm calling Dad. Dad, come get me. I don't want to fly home. <laughs> and sure enough, he drove all the way down to Virginia, wow. picked me up, and, and took me home. Sweet Dad. Now, the irony in all this is that when I come back, I am assigned to an aviation battalion. And at the time, they had, uh, right over at Westover, they had uh, OH-6s, uh, the old Cobra attack helicopters, and Hueys, UH-1s. So I'm like, shit, now here I am, <laughs> here I am around aviation. So throughout the years, you know, you, you get in and you start flying with some of these helicopter pilots. You start befriending some of them, some of these warrant officers, and they start encouraging you to engage in, in the aviation field. And a lot of them did uh, to the point where they were taking me to the simulator, which was a, it was a, it was a full motion simulator, but no visual, um, which was, you know, kind of fun for a kid. Right. And, you know, for a while there, I was trying to get into the Army aviation and I couldn't for many, well, basically one reason. My right eye had too much astigmatism, um, and I tried to join the aviation, the, at the time there was a LASIK surgery study program, and I tried to join that, and that just didn't work, like still too blind. Um, and so I'm like, you know what? September 11th happened. I remember sitting at Westover, mm -hmm. and at the time I was getting into general aviation, and not too long before that, there was a small aircraft that flew up the East River and crashed. Mm -hmm. And in this day, uh, our old first sergeant, um, first sergeant Riles, Candy Riles, comes in and goes, "An airplane just struck the World Trade Center." And I'm like, in my mind, I have an image of a small aircraft striking uh, the World Trade Center. So we go up. Uh, we had this counter drug team, and they had a little room. And above the room was an office, and we all go up there to turn on the news. And it's like, now you see this building with billowing smoke coming out of it. And as we're watching it, we see the second. Oh, wow. Aircraft hit. Oh. And we immediately went on shutdown, locked down the base, no mm -hmm. one in or out. That literally was the moment that everything just changed. Mm -hmm. And through there, I saw the world stop. The world just stopped. Nobody wanted to fly. People were losing their jobs. The economy started struggling. And, you know, I grew up in Holyoke. I don't like bullies, right? Yeah. Don't like bullies. And we were being bullied, mm -hmm. right, out of our own economy. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, F this, mm -hmm. I'm going to get to the sky. 
I'm going to learn how to fly and point my two fingers, you know, to those a-holes who did this. Mm-hmm. And so I did. Mm-hmm. In 2002, October of 2002, I took my check ride and became a private pilot. So slightly a year after. Yeah. A little bit and you here. conquered your fear of flying. Huge. And not only that, it like opened up the world to me. And when I mean it opened up the world, like who would have thought a little Puerto Rican kid from Holyoke would be hanging out in Nantucket for the weekend? Yeah. Like never in my wildest dreams. Martha's Vineyard. I've flown around the country, mm-hmm. you know, two or three times already. Mm-hmm. I've flown up and down the East Coast a dozen times. What's, not, what's Nantucket like? Wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's certainly a, um, I don't know, there's, there's a threshold there where you have to be a, of a certain affluence to get there. How did you get there? They had an airport. Okay. <laughs> they had an airport and I flew my ass over there. You know, it's like. And once you got there, what did you do? First of all, just drooled that out. Like <laughs> how much, like it's a beautiful place, but like the affluence is insane. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, if you, if you grew up without money, you'll recognize it when you see it. Right. And you see people going out to these places. So go have dinners and spend a couple hundred dollars on a dinner. Uh, cost of admission to certain places are just extraordinary. Um, the cost of real estate is out of control. Yeah. You know, um, and then you realize like somebody somewhere owns this. Mm-hmm. Right? So it kind of opens up your mind. Like everything that's out there, somebody owns. And then you start questioning like, why don't I own that? Mm-hmm. What do I have to do to get to that point? So um, not that I'm at a point where I can do anything like that. Today, Jesus has a house in Nantucket. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, <laughs> there, yeah, I, I really wish I could, but it, it definitely opens up your eyes. It, and I think that that... Um, for me, aviation was the great equalizer. It was something that made me feel on par with other people across this country. Because I was definitely, I mean, to this day, insecure about certain things. You know, I always talk about my insecurity with my education or, or my ability to speak publicly. Like, there's a lot of things I do bring up, and I am. I'm very uncomfortable with it. But I also know that if I don't get out there and try something, I'll never learn. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, get out of your shells, get out there. and You know, what got me to conquer my fear was also, um, is, is, first, there were two things. One, I flew over a hurricane um, coming back from Puerto Rico many years ago. And so, as you can imagine, it was a very turbulent sure. ride at one point. Right. And it was scary. And it was, so we would drop and I could feel my body este, come up against the seatbelt. And... I was that I was, was negative G by the way. That's negative G. When you, when you feel like yeah like you're coming yeah, out of your seat. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's fun if you're an amusement park ride. <laughs> it's not when you're really high up in the air. Uh, and I was sort of near the front of the plane. I mean I was in coach, but near the front. And there was a, a flight attendant coming down. And I said, "Are we okay?" And she was just having the time of her life with the turbulence. <laughs> She's like, "Oh yeah, this is fun." And that went a long way to conquering my fear. And I think what sealed it was I was in an airplane flying on 9-11. I was going from Spain to Puerto Rico. And it was when we were just maybe 40 minutes out of, you know, before landing in Puerto Rico. You know, we already started descending. And the pilot says, there's been an accident at the World Trade Center. All the airports are closed. Um, a plane hit one of the towers, so we're going to go straight to the Dominican Republic. So we, we could see. We flew right past Puerto Rico. I could see so Puerto they Rico. They diverted you to DR, huh? Yeah. 
And we landed there. And, you know, we didn't have information. So when we right. land there, there's nobody at the airport. Like, the airport has closed. It's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So all the horrors had already happened, no? The four planes. Right. Um, and so we're just trying to get our... When we say when I say we, I mean the passengers. I was flying by myself. I wasn't with anybody, you know, what do you think is happening? And like, we get off the plane. We're told to get off the plane. And then we're going to go, we're going to be taken to some hotel. And I'm like, wait a minute. I saw a cover of an afternoon newspaper and I saw those billows of smoke. Yeah. And then I, you know, I was kind of like looking at it, trying not to look at it. You know, when you see right. something you don't want to see, but you have to look at it. Right. In this case, because I want to know what happened. And this news team came up to me and said, what are, what's your reaction? And my reaction was, how is it possible that in the greatest nation in the country, people could do this, do this harm yeah. to in the country? How is that possible? And there's a giant failure that has happened. And I don't know where it happened, but obviously there was a failure if this could happen. And... I flew back to Spain. I didn't. I thought. I thought that you know President Bush was going to launch missiles. You know, I, that, that was an act of war. Of course. So I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to stay here in the Dominican Republic when the world is coming to an end because I don't know anybody here, right. and I'm scared out of my mind. And I need to be with people that I that love me and that I love. And as we're taxiing out, you know, we have to stop for a moment because there are these kids on bicycles. You know, those banana seed bicycles just, you know, pedaling across the runway. It's like for all the security in the world. Have you been to? to I haven't been to DR. No. Yeah. Okay. Their airport. I mean, at least back in 2001, it was very, you know, chill. Well, I mean, that's it's, it's totally different now for sure. I mean, oh, yeah. But like, it's I mean, we're taking off shoes now. We're, does that really? Okay. As a pilot, does that really make a difference? They're looking for. See, the thing is, one thing we have to understand is that the federal government is reactionary. They're not proactive, mm -hmm. at least not our federal government. We see something bad happen once, and we're like, let's stop it by implementing these controls, right? Mm -hmm. So one knucklehead had some stuff in his shoes and tried to blow up a plane, mm -hmm. and now everyone has to take off their damn shoes. Mm -hmm. Well, there's enough technology out there for us to detect that stuff while you're walking around in the airport, while you go through the machines. Like, there's, there's, there's So why are we doing this theater of taking off our shoes and... Exactly. Because there's always somebody in the top of the food chain who has a better idea. Mm. And, and, and knows how to then, if they work around that technology? No. They're, they're, they're the ones who are, they're the, they're the policy makers who go, everyone needs to take off their shoes from now on. Okay. So I'm saying the opposite of what Okay, that's, that's another knucklehead. Yeah, it's another. There's the knucklehead who comes with a knife in, in his shoes. Sure. Then there's the knucklehead who says, okay, everybody take off their shoes. Yep, that, as has, if, that has to be the response. That's not a good response, though. Eh, we, I, I agree with you. You know, if we go through those machines where we have to raise our hands up and then somebody somewhere can detect if we have something yeah. on us. What are, they're looking for metals, right? They're looking for, yeah. But they can't detect plastic. And now you can print guns sure. in 3D. Sure. I mean, but that I knew from having seen... But plastics will show up in like an X-ray too, though. Oh, they will? Yeah, yeah. Okay. They, 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 they have these machines that read density in material. Okay. So, you know, the, the, they're pretty cool. They're yeah. actually color now, and they you can see sort of like the different things. In like, it's like an MRI. Pretty much. It's yeah. pretty neat. And I think uh, the technology is there, but it's also like, 
you're fighting also the public's need and want for you know their right to be free and not to be you know like we can track a lot of information in this country if we really wanted to yeah well we do edward mm. snowden remember him he yes. taught us yes but but front-facing agencies like you know the tsa are not going to do that because they're accountable to the public well okay Right, I don't think agencies like that are going to be doing it forthright in front of everyone. The National see. Security Agency may do be doing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, I don't if personally. I this is terrible. I don't mind it. You know, you guys do either. what you think you need to do either, so that because, we're safe. Because we've been yeah. around long enough to see what the downfall of not doing those things means. Right. And how is right. it that everybody kept their job? The CIA had kept oh, kept his job. The FBI director kept his job. If they, how is it possible with this giant failure? Because you had these competing agencies, and then you had these guys. Because you know, it's like we got to be competitive, and we're tougher, we're smarter, and it's like no, dudes, we got to work that, together. That's, <laughs> that's because you have men in charge, and we're notorious for demeasuring, right? <laughs> we we want to see who has a bigger one. Yeah, and, and it's it's ego. And then that that ends up yeah. With and then we have nine eleven. Right, and so that's why it's important to get people with that type of personality out of places that are you know running agencies you don't need that collaboration is the only way to go with anything mm -hmm. whether it's a city mm -hmm. you know whether it's the federal government mm -hmm. agencies companies you want collaboration yeah you want across the line not just among people that you like working in yeah. silos only works if you're trying to do covert operations and right like that's that, when right? you work in a silo yep. otherwise work with each other collaborate because that to it me it's, it was an unforgivable act of the united states government that enabled 9-11 to happen. Yeah, but there's always the fight with those who are constitutionalists too. They're like, well, you're violating a constitutional right by wiretapping this and doing that. So that, that's, that's the big fight in America. Yeah, and I understand that, but I also like, why didn't, why didn't anybody in Florida tell the FAA, hey, we got these students here and all they wanna do is learn how to take off. They don't care about learning how to land. Doesn't that, why in the world did that not wow. raise red flags? Well, I'm sure it raised red flags, but I mean, look at the society we live in now. I mean, people are quick to jump to racism as a response to why things are being done. Okay, if I have anybody, I don't care where they're from, <laughs> and they only want to learn how to take off, I'm calling the FAA, and I don't care who they are, and they can call me whatever they want. I'd say, sure. Mira, these guys I, are learning well, that's it, only though. to, and, and to they, fly. But there's a lot of people who... Not to land. America is full of people who are sheep. Yeah. You know, true yeah. leaders, people who get out there in the front, people who face adversity, people who are vocal. They're few, far in between. And then sometimes we do get the ones that are very vocal who are like the extremists, right, on, on, on either end of any political platform. And it's like, Jesus, we should take away their megaphones, but they have them. Don't get me started on the woke yeah. people. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, yeah. it's tough. And, you know, there's, there's a truth to everything, right? There's a grain of truth in almost everything that's said and done. But when we take it to the extremes, it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. What do you think should be the experience um, uh, when you arrive at the airport? Oh, I don't think the experience will ever exist again. No? No, because at one point, like, we celebrated aviation as a like, technological like, advancement in our society. And, and it was, absolutely was. And, then, and it started off with like, everything else being something for people of affluence only. People used to get dressed up to go on an airplane, right? They used to get dressed up. I mean, they also smoked on the airplane too, right? Because that was socially acceptable back then. But it was a big deal. It was expensive, and you know. But to get from you know North Carolina to Massachusetts and you know however long, a couple hours was a big deal. Now we do it so frequently that it's just 
you know, pajamas. It's awful. I know. Flip flops. <laughs> I know. I know. If I if I if I were king of the world, or queen of the world, or of the airports, I would say, okay, people, you can't wear flip flops. Everybody has to wear shoes, and there has to be some sort of basic dress code, um, and then the service has to be a lot better. Sure. This is this is this is a privilege that we can fly. It Even is. Even doesn't matter if it costs me forty five dollars to fly from point A to point B. It's still a privilege. Sure. Uh, sure. I think I think if we can get um, these big large uh, aviation uh, companies to stop taking federal dollars and they can start implementing their own rules, right? Because once you start taking any dollars from any agency, federal or local, mm -hmm. then you have to sort of comply with certain rules. But is that a bad thing? We're talking about flying, very specific then. The well, FAA oversees... Well, federal government gives dollars out. Then right. the federal government says you're now required to have this type of security. Yeah, but the federal government, for instance, they allow airlines, the big airlines in coach, you have no leg room. In fact, your knees are behind you. Yeah. That it's it's just it's ridiculous. Yeah. As as the the standard American is getting larger, the uh, <laughs> the <laughs> the seatings are getting. Yeah, and they do that by inclining the back of the seat more erect than before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, and this is it's it's a dollar thing. I mean, it's you fit more seats in the airplane when you do it that way. Well, that's where the federal government's supposed to tell the airlines, no, you cannot have you know fifty more passengers. Well, that's comfort Be versus. Well, isn't it comfort and safety? Because if I'm on a window seat and I don't have leg room and there's an emergency and it's hard to get out, isn't that then a safety issue? Sure. And the federal government just allows the airlines to do whatever they want. Well, it's written somewhere. So we got to see who wrote it, who made that standard, and then figure out if that's you know, really viable. The problem is you need people that are really looking into like the depths of law. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you think of the airline industry, you know, it's when and the seats, like... Our coach seats have more legroom, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, you have half an inch more than the other airline. It's terrible. I mean, if you have five inches more, then that'll be super impressive. But sure. a half inch more of legroom is not impressive. It's certainly it's, it's about the mighty dollar. Yeah, and then now everything is you know, este, como se dice there? Oh. Pay more if you want to get on first. Pay more <laughs> if you want to have a la carte, a, right? Yeah, it's a la carte. It's a menu. And it's like, wait a minute. I hey, thought, do you want to pick your seat? You yeah. $39.99 to pick your seat. It's like going to a restaurant. Oh, yeah, I'll have a fork. That'll cost me $10 more. A knife, that'll be $20 more. That was, you know. That was our experience. So we just recently came back from Madison, Wisconsin. We took the whole office, right? The whole Veterans Service Department went down to Madison, Wisconsin. And it was, it was for really good reasons, man. We, we're talking about we're meeting the, the you know, cabinet-level individuals that run the VA system, the healthcare side, the benefit side, the cemetery side. But as I'm making my arrangements to go out, it's like, you know, do you want to upgrade your seat? <laughs> do you want to pick your seat? Do you want to bring a bag? <laughs> you want luggage with you on this trip? That's more money. And I'm like, do I need to pay to use the toilet too? Like, I don't know. I'm kind of confused here. And it was the longest process. And I remember like, man, I should just buy a ticket. You should just buy a ticket. Right. For for 36A. That yeah. was my ticket. Yeah. I'm good. Let's go. Yeah. Now it's like, do you really want 36A? <laughs> you can have 36A for, you know, $59.99. So it's, it was But for it's, 30 more dollars, you can be in 12A. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> the only okay, okay, I'll, you know that's upselling and upgrading and stuff. Mm -hmm. The only one upsell that I did that I paid out of pocket for myself was uh, the hotel. Uh huh. So the hotel, uh, it was a Madison Concourse, right? Uh, 
They, they emailed me and said, for $40, we'll upgrade you to the governor's floors. And you get four pillows. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was actually worth it. It's the only like good purchase that I made the whole time. So $40 a night, uh-huh. right? Five nights, 200 bucks. Uh-huh. You get to go up to the 12th floor uh-huh. and have breakfast there. Uh-huh. It's like a regular old like buffet type breakfast. Uh-huh. Nothing crazy. Um, but if you went to the lobby downstairs to have breakfast, it was going to cost you 20 bucks anyway. Oh, wow. Like anywhere from 15 to 20 I know. And then everybody started talking about upgrade. Like you go to, oh. you know, um, what is it? Oh, for so many things to upgrade like apps. Oh. Like we started using that word yes. upgrade yeah. instead of, can we just have nope. what we're paying for? Nope. They gatekeep you. They give you a, a, a like a little piece of a particular application, right? You put an app. Oh, you can do these things. Well, for forty nine ninety five, we'll get you full access to all the features. You're like, God, you know, what the hell? Yeah. You know, so I have my apps on my phone for flying, for the two airlines that I usually fly. Yeah. And, you know, building miles on them. And so I will pay for the flights, even if they're more expensive than on another airline, because I'm more interested in the miles. Right. They eventually pay off for me, for someone like me. But flying has lost. it's, It's not even like getting on a bus. You know, I've been on public buses, you know, Peter Pan. Trailways, I mean, a million times. Amtrak, you know, now, like going on a bus, that's like good service. Right. Like it's, tur- it's turned around, you I know. I think they had to because the, the transportation market got so competitive. Yeah. Right? Everyone started flying. Yeah. And I, quite honestly, like, I'm, I'm now a person of convenience. So this trip to Madison, I was literally contemplating flying my own airplane down there. Mm-hmm. Right. I sat there and I talked to the city. I said, look, I can get to Madison, Wisconsin and back for about $1,200 of gas mm-hmm. in my little airplane. And my staff is willing to fly with us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they basically said no. <laughs> They're like, we have no provisions to allow you, you know, to pay you. And then we're worried about, you know. Insurance li- and what li- if something li- happens. I'm like, I have insurance. I have liability insurance. It's whatever. It would have been five hours of flying in a small plane. Mm-hmm. Okay. Five hours and going one way? Yes, one way. Mm-hmm. All the way to South Carolina. No, this was Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, perdóname. Yeah. All the way to the, right, going Madison. west. Yeah, go to Madison, Wisconsin. We'd be about five hours. Maybe I stopped. That is cool. There's just like you're, right. in the, you're in the plane. You can bring your sandwich, yeah. whatever, your thermos, and away you go. So $1,200 would have cost us to get this done. I probably would have eaten a lot of the other costs, like, mm-hmm. you know, oil and whatever. said no. Well, now we have to go to the airlines. Mm-hmm. It was over $2,000 mm-hmm. for bags, yeah. for the tickets. Yeah. And then plus, you know... Random That's stuff. interesting. It killed me. I'm like, I'm here. I'm trying to save the city money. Yeah. They were like, no. Who okay. says no? Uh, policy people who try to uphold the policies. That's okay. All. And you know, and for good reason. They're trying to keep their job. They're like, and, but it's also like, are, are we are we being? Um, I'm not going to say clever, but are we really looking at the policies as written? Is there exceptions to those policies? Are there new policies in the place that you guys don't know about? You know, are we really looking into these things because? I'm not the only person who has an airplane. Well, that's what, that's what I was about to ask you. If you're the only person who has an airplane who works for the city, then it's not surprising that there isn't the policy that would say, okay, when this pilot has to go someplace with his staff, the city will pay for costs associated well, the, with the, using his plane. The rare, well, the, the crazy thing is that they'll pay me to drive. Mm-hmm. I can take all my staff members, put them in my car, and we could drive somewhere three hours, mm-hmm. right? If it's, if it's something that's feasible, right? I can get to, or go drive to Cape Cod for a conference, right? Totally can do that, but they don't want me to put them in my airplane. Hmm. And driving is infinitely more dangerous than flying. Right. So what's the th- logic there? 
Is it just... I, I think it's pure fear. I think it's people who don't know the real statistics or have never dealt with the situation and don't know how to But you as director of veteran services, I mean, obviously, it's not part of your job to persuade city policymakers to allow you to use your plane instead of your car when you're doing work-related stuff. But in some ways, it's like then you have to educate them, right? And say To a certain extent. I mean, there's some limiting factors, right? Whatever state law says about uh, reimbursements for certain travel, mm-hmm. um, there's all that, like, you know, our city, we don't have a city credit card for travel. So we live in this world where I, as a director, am going to be a nice person and put everyone's tickets on my credit card. Mm-hmm. Go to the conference and come back. But guess what? If a cycle lapse mm-hmm. on that credit card and I get charged interest, mm-hmm. the city's not going to reimburse me that interest. Mm-hmm. They're going to give me the amount of money I paid for for the mm-hmm. tickets, and, but there's no other method of paying for it. Oh, wow. And it's like, well, why isn't there? Wow. It's, it's literally 2023. So a lot of this is just antiquated uh, policies that have been in the state forever that no one's taken time to challenge or look at. And I I see that across the board. If you learn anything about me, I'm a time and motion person. I talk about how many steps it gets to get, how many steps it takes to get to finish. Mm -hmm. Right? Why am I taking 18 steps to do this one process when we could do it in three? You're very analytical. When it comes to things like that, other people call it lazy, <laughs> right? Like I don't want to be, I just don't want to do a bunch of things that can. So, like for instance, when I first got to the city, the the like the, the, the one thing that stuck out to me is that we had this big copy machine. Mm-hmm. But that's all it was. It was a big copy machine that faxed. And the first time they asked me to send in the, um, uh, you know, our, our payroll you know, timesheet, they have mm-hmm. time like hand like handwritten timesheets. You know, you need to fax it to us. And I said, well, I'll just email it to you. Mm-hmm. You can't email it to me. <laughs> of course I can. They're like, no, you, you can't. Like, why not? Because we need a copy. I'm like, well, if you need a copy, just print it. <laughs> and then they'll go on and say, well, we need the original copy. I said, well, I'm not faxing you the original copy. If I faxed it, like, what logic does that make? But this stands till today where uh-huh. there's these policies where it's like, well, this is how we've always done it. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, well, have you asked to change the policy? Have you right. asked to change the ordinance? Have you asked to and change? And like that across the country. It's everywhere. We have, op- we're, you know, love my city. I love a lot of the employees. And there's some that I don't love. I'll we're saying honest. everything with love. Right. It's love. But there's there's some antiquated systems. There are antiquated. And it's not just, and the thing is what you're pointing out so well is, is it's happening locally and it happens on the federal level as well. Absolutely. And so why d- does that happen? What needs to change? There are lots of really great people who work for the city of Holyoke, lots of great people who work in the federal government. Why are we using policies from the 1980s so, or 1960s I or a, whenever? I probably have a partial answer to that because mm-hmm. I'm dealing with something now. Mm-hmm. Um, back in 1978, there was a gentleman who lived in East Hampton who sued the city of East Hampton for not being eligible for veterans benefits. Because at the time, the state law said, in order to be eligible for state veterans benefits, you must have been a resident of Massachusetts for at least three years, Mm. or or left or entered service from Massachusetts, right? So if you were from Mass and you went into the service, you came back, you're good. But if you, this guy happened to come from Vermont, and he was here two years, lost his job, not eligible because you weren't here for whatever. Well, that ended up going to uh, district court and then to the appellate court. The district court held that it was unconstitutional to make him wait three years when we're already giving veterans of Massachusetts 
benefits right away. And, the, and, and I'll say it's not really benefits. What it is is public assistance. That's what the state program is. It's, it's welfare for veterans. And um, the community legal aid, as we know it, then uh, took it to court, won, and they changed language. Well, the, the appellate court said, look, Section 3 of Chapter 115 states that there's a residency requirement. Anything in that section that refers to residency is deemed unconstitutional. In that section, it talks about veterans having to be live, you know, living in Massachusetts for three years and dependents of veterans living in Massachusetts for three years. This was decided in 1978 that it was unconstitutional. Do you know when the law changed? 2005. Oh, wow. Why did it... First of all... Who are the pinheads who said there had to be a residency <laughs> requirement? And then even bigger pinheads who said, you have to be here three years. Why three years? I mean, right. it's so, so random. So the reality is, is that, so the, the program that we run is unique to Massachusetts. And the intent of the law was to make sure that we are taking care of veterans from Massachusetts. But if you watch, once you start getting into the 14th Amendment, right, equal protection of the law. Right is the big part that we. Thank you for about. explaining because I didn't know what yeah, the fourteenth. Yeah, the fourteenth amendment. amendment is equal yeah. protection of the law, mm-hmm. and then there's uh, the right to travel. Mm-hmm. So when you go from one state to another, and you end up in another state, and you decide to domicile there, do you get treated as the same as the rest of the residents in that state? Mm-hmm. Right. Except veterans. In this particular area, uh, there was that fight about that you know residency for veterans, and and then in two thousand five when they changed the law. They only change the language on the veteran, not the dependents. So when you read the law today, it still says dependents must live here for Are these years. state lawmakers? So what it is, is having action from your legislat- legislators mm-hmm. once these, these decisions are being made. Mm-hmm. So you need a champion, someone to say and go, look, this just happened. This got decided. Mm-hmm. We ask you to change the law. Mm-hmm. 1978 to 2005, that's how long it took for them to change the law. And they still got it wrong. So to today, we're still fighting certain things for, for instance, surviving spouses. So you are from Texas. Mm -hmm. Your spouse passes away, who happens to be a veteran. You come to Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. You are not afforded the protection from Chapter 115. We won't give you public assistance to the program because your spouse was never a Massachusetts resident. This, but this is the federal government, and the federal government's well. This is state. This one's state. Yeah, but it gets the money from the federal government. Basically, it gets the money from us, the taxpayers. Yes. Some of the our tax money goes to the federal government. Yes. Some goes for the state. Yeah. So I'm I'm also very aware of when when to be very specific. It's like, oh no, this money is coming from the state. Uh, it's coming from us who no, live wherever we live, or it's coming from the federal government. It's still coming from taxpayers. So I'm not pushing back. I'm just no, clarifying. No, I, I get it. I love it when like, you push back too, because it's like. It, creates great conversation so so then there's how is it how is it possible that veterans who these are men and women who decide okay i'm gonna risk my life for a bunch of strangers 300 and something million people yeah i will risk my life and then they can't get benefits and their their spouses can't get their children because of these pinhead policies yeah so currently we're sitting at a point where the veteran themselves they're very well i guess covered Mm-hmm. But you have other people who are the sheep. The law says, mm-hmm. well, not too long ago, the law said three years, mm-hmm. right? That's what it said. And it had to go to court. And then, then the, the appellate court says, listen, that whole section that talks about residency for any of them, and they enjoin not only the veterans, but also the, the spouses and dependents. Mm-hmm. They're like, listen, they're all, they're all applicants of this mm-hmm. particular program. They're all protected this way. Mm-hmm. And then the policymakers go out and then put in a law, change the law to address half the issue. 
So to today, I'm, I have a big fight with this particular topic. It's, it's, it's my thing. So I'm looking to legislators to change and language. Our, yeah. And language. our legislators, like Senator John Vilas, he Pat represents Duffy. us. Yep, Pat Duffy. Pat Duffy is a representative. Yeah, and this Richie is a Richie Neal's our congressman. Right. And that's on the federal level. Right. I mean, it... I've... How... It's... I don't have words. I, it I seems have, to I, me that veterans should not have to fight to get benefits. Or spouses. Or spouses or, spou- or children. Right. Right. No one should have to fight. Veterans should not have but to fight to get the their benefits that they were promised. Yeah. In the defense of, like... So, for instance... We not we used to have the Department of Veterans Services. That was a state agency that oversaw this program, saw the soldier, oversaw the soldiers' homes. They're now the Executive Office of Veterans Services. They have a cabinet level secretary now. Um, and I'll say that uh, so far, his general counsel has been more than open to talk to me multiple times, which has never happened in my tenure here in Holyoke. Ever. Well, also as we know, the soldiers' home. Uh, what a what a debacle that was that led to the deaths of more than eighty veterans and yeah so whoever the state better treat you as director of veteran services with so much respect and you know open heart uh ears ready to listen to you because of what they allowed to happen here i think what i hope is that they're 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 sort of giving us some some grace uh in, in having our word because Although we work for the municipality, like I work for the city of Holyoke, I don't work for the state of Massachusetts. And, you know, the Executive Office of Veteran Services is a state agency. And there's, you know, a bunch of us. There's a bunch of veteran service officers in the state. I hope that they do um, heed, you know, some of our warnings uh, as, as that. Because the only thing that I'm left without, um, you know, I don't have the power of legislation, but I have media, right? Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that I have. Mm-hmm. And I think we've used that effectively over the years uh, to sort of point out when things aren't being done properly. Legislators, they have a terrible, hard job. I would never want to be one because you're looking after everyone's interest in every aspect of, of the job. And I I can barely focus on my one thing that I had to do. Yep. So I give them a lot of credit for what they're doing. But when, you know, many years ago, we were talking about, like, challenges in the soldier's home. And, and it wasn't as critical as what happened. We were talking about staffing issues, morale issues. And, you know, at one point, I directed the, the then superintendent to, to speak to us, and he was pissed. When he came to talk to us, I'm like, look, we're trying to give you information about your staff who's reaching out to us mm-hmm. about, you know, the health and well-being of not only the veterans in the soldiers home, but also the employees. Because last time, well, many years ago, the culture wasn't very healthy. And we're trying to, you know, trying to address that because, I mean, the days of slaving at work nine to five, that, that's over, man. Mm-hmm. People want a good quality of life and a good work-life balance, and they should. Mm-hmm. Because slavery right. for work is terrible. Yeah, one of the one of one of the things. I mean, there's so many things that are frustrating to me. <laughs> so, okay, one of the things on my list is we didn't take advantage during COVID, during the pandemic, to reboot how we do things, mm. a, to make a better uh, quality of life society for everybody. On my way here to work, for instance, you know, I passed by the Salvation Army. There's a long line of people, right, and um, it's that should not happen. People should not be hungry. People should not be in such need. We as a society, I pay taxes, so that that kind of thing should not happen. Right. And yet it's happening all over the place. That I mean, that brings us. Well, that brings me into a whole different conversation about how we, how we as community members build our societies. Right. Because how are 
city runs and functions and what we allow in here is kind of up to us. Like we elect the people who run policy. We, we, we elect the people who, you know, the executive office, we, we allow or don't allow certain things. And we're in a very, I mean, we're, we're all walking on eggshells because everyone's quick to jump on the race problem. Mm-hmm. And, and I need to be clear that I typically don't go down that route because once upon a time, the mm-hmm. Irish here in Holyoke were being, you know, sat down on because they were, mm-hmm. they were Irish, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the Polish and everyone mm-hmm. took turns apparently getting beat down. And I think that's just a human problem, not so much a Holyoke problem. Oh, it's not a Holyoke problem at all. I've lived in many, in different places and everywhere, whether it's in Puerto Rico, whether it's in Spain, este, you know, whether, you know, whether we're talking about Greece or Turkey, doesn't matter. There's, people always find somebody else t- sure, to, to, blame. to blame, to oppress. Yeah. Uh, it is part of like the human condition. Yeah, the human condition, absolutely. And, it's and really I'm, super depressing. And I'm. That and we're okay with that. Yeah, I don't know if I'm okay with it. Well, no, I mean, as a society, we tolerate it. We do tolerate we it. We do tolerate it. Yeah, I mean, getting back to the whole like seeing people hungry and stuff. I'm, I'm a firm believer now today is that how you build your community is how healthy other people are going to live. That's right. Right. So it's like we get into these really tough topics. Yeah. Everyone talks about housing. Housing is the number one thing. Everyone's, we need more housing. We need more low income housing. We need more shelters in Holyoke. Really? Yeah. Why, why in Holyoke? Yeah. Yeah. Something interesting happened the other day, Safe Passage, which is um, an agency that works with uh, women who are abused by their partners. Yeah. They've decided they're going to close down their shelter because what they're seeing is that they have people who live in the shelter for more than a year. Um, and they think their view now is what needs to happen is not to be more housing so that these women have a place to go. And that so then we at Safe Passage can assign someone to help them with all the things they need, sure. but they're not in a shelter. They're in their own home. But the thing is, and that's a really good question. How much subsidized housing can Holyoke offer when you have a place like Longmeadow that doesn't basic? I don't know. They have, I think, subsidized housing for the elderly. They have subsidized housing. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> I worked there for a little bit. So they meet whatever state quota that might be if there is one. But yeah. yeah and, and that's exactly it. And, and let me tell you, the, when I worked in Longmeadow, that was a huge culture shock for me. Huge culture shock. Because, you know, coming from Holyoke, there's only a handful of people who are active politically, handful of people who are open and honest about their political positions um and in long meadow it, it's uh, my my experience was not that there were people who were very clear that said no we don't want these things here as a community member i don't want this here but that is is, is that a racist thing or is that an economic issue I think because it's a social economic problem I, I think that i think the majority of what we're dealing with today has very at some point it did had racism to do with it but i think today as we stand here today as as commingled as we are as a community and and like, I mean, how many just like pure Puerto Rican families do you know now, or pure Black families, or whatever? Like, age, like we're so mixed nowadays. I think that that's sort of going away, but we do still have the social economic problem. Some of it is just simple math. Mm-hmm. Like, how much how much taxes can the city raise and raise and appropriate for for services in the city? How many people do they have to serve? Okay, so family one, who's you know a broken family, challenging history, substance abuse, that requires X amount of dollars of social services. Do we have that? Now we're tapping on the state to say, hey, state, we need money or agencies to come in. Then those agencies come in and they become these pilot in lieu of, you know, payment in lieu of taxes, folks, right? They'll, they'll, they're a nonprofit. They won't pay tax. 
yeah, it's called the pilot. And, <laughs> uh, you know, they'll, they'll, instead of paying taxes, they give us an arrangement that we're going to give you some money. But if no one's there to make sure that that particular pilot is renewed, that pilot ends. Well, you, uh, City Councilor uh, Kevin Jordan talked about that pilot program. Yep. And he went down all these n- giant nonprofits that are here, like ISO New England, which is the, the agency that este, oversees our electricity, our energy in New England. Okay. Um, multi-million dollar agency. Um, there are other, uh, Holyoke Housing Authority. There are multi-million dollar agencies in Holyoke that, and I'm not, I'm not pointing to anyone in particular, but that give a small amount of payment in lieu of taxes to the city of Holyoke. But if Holyoke keeps allowing faith-based institutions to take right. up a lot of room, a lot of real estate, and all these agencies that then don't have to pay taxes if they don't want to, and I and yeah. the mayor is working with the heads of these different agencies to see what money they can give to Holyoke. Right. It just seems to me we got to start taxing the churches. We just have to tax them. I mean, <laughs> that, why don't why aren't they taxed? I think what right, makes like them you, so special? You, you would lose a whole bunch of them to begin with, which is probably okay. good because now you have okay. now you have taxable property out there. Exactly. But I'm with you. I'm with you. It's like we have to understand that. My, so for me, my philosophy is like we're a community. We contribute to our community. I don't mind paying taxes. When they were talking about two schools, you think I was batting an eye about raising my taxes? Not at all. I'm in the working years of my life. I don't have any children that be uh, taking advantage of this school system, but there, I know a lot of families, kids who would be. And I was totally in for that. Don't care what the politics behind it was. I was willing to pay. Um, and I'm willing to pay because I want to better my community. And because I'm able to, right? I'm in a, I say I'm in a fortunate position where I can afford paying more taxes, whatever, right? But then you have a whole lot of people who don't contribute. That's right. And they use our street. Like, and, and, it, and it was funny because as a child, I used to think that what a stupid analogy. People always talk about oh, the roads being paved. Like, But now here I am as an adult, I'm like, our roads are being paved. You know, it's like <laughs> things cost money. And yes, paving the road comes out of our tax dollars in, in certain instances, right? Like our DPW gets paid from our tax dollars. Like Exactly. So the more and more burden that we put on them with less people contributing or less people keeping our own community clean. Well, this is where I think this is where... Uh, Holyoke would do well to think about. I mean, there there are no there's no law that says you as a nonprofit agency cannot open an office here. Right. Uh, if you're a nonprofit agency with you know 200 employees and you need a big building, fine. But now they're not paying taxes. And the same thing with the faith based, uh, with whatever synagogue, temples, churches. They should be paying something because they're using our city services. Sure. I mean, it's not like, oh, when it's time to plow the snow, okay, lift up the plow, <laughs> you know. <laughs> not this section right here. Not this section here. Exactly. <laughs> this church hasn't paid taxes yet. <laughs> exactly. We're not picking up this garbage. Right. You know, we're not doing this. We're doing all of that. There's a fire. Right. The, the, our fire department goes. Absolutely. So it's just this crazy notion, antiquated, I would say, as we were speaking earlier yeah. about policies that don't make sense. That's a policy that doesn't make yeah, sense. And I'm unsure if it's if it's a if it's a federal thing. I Whatever mean, well, it is. Not, yeah, these are our taxes. My pay federal taxes, I pay state taxes. When people say to me about the new school, yeah, and I voted in favor of the two schools last time. Yeah. And I'll vote in favor well, the city council already voted in favor of the 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 school now. Yeah. Um 
okay, I'm, I'm all for it. But when they say, uh, the state's going to pay this much and then we're going to pay this much. Excuse me, we're paying the whole thing because those of us who are taxpayers... <laughs> who are paying state taxes. Yeah, we're paying state taxes, so we're still paying yeah. for that other part. Yeah. And the same thing like with the CPA, you know, the Community Preservation Act. Now there's, a, there's some people who want to like lower how much of our taxes go to it by a little bit. Um, and and it, the mayor's going to push that it won't be on, so it's not on the ballot. Because many people are going to say, yeah, I want to lower my taxes without knowing... They are doing really great work in improving yeah. quality of life in Holyoke. Yeah, and they're not, the thing is, they don't have media. They're not really announcing all the good work that they do. They definitely so, need it because, I mean, Lady Liberty was, was uh, helped out, I think, uh, through one of the gentlemen that, that, that's on the CPA. And mm-hmm. it's like, you need people like that in the city. Mm-hmm. There's all these hidden faces that we never talk about. That's right. And that's what I've learned. And let me tell you, I was an ungrateful individual for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've... You know, humility hit me in the face a bunch of times when I was wrong about a lot. You know, like, you know, I think, uh, you know, as a kid, you're like, oh, they never want to fix our parks, mm-hmm. right, downtown. Like, our parks, I mean, mm-hmm. talking about, like, the Hispanic areas. Mm-hmm. And then you go to, like, uh, you know, uh, the, the Vega Park, right? Vega was renovated and everything else. And when, a couple of years ago, we they had uh, the South Holyoke, uh, whatever they have down there, the party there. Um, I'm taking my parents around, and the Vega Park was in bad shape. Mm-hmm. like just filth like needles and stuff it's like man we as community members need to police our community members mm-hmm. so when you see fulano out there throwing mm-hmm. garbage on the street mira pick that up man i know but the problem is i'm i'm with you the problem is when i see that when i see people throwing garbage out of their car and i want to just like at the next stoplight i want to get out of my car and th- will you pick up your garbage? You wouldn't want that in front of your house. Why do you think it's cool to have it in front of all these other people's I homes? Get that. I get that a lot in the War Memorial. So if you, so we have McDonald's in front of us, first yeah. of all. And then on Maple Street, there's mm-hmm. literally a bin. It's a compactor, right? Solar-driven compactor. And people will walk right by it and then dump their coffee cup onto the grass. And, I mean, I'll be honest. I come outside and say, excuse me, there's... There's literally a trash can ten feet that way. Well, you're you're a tough hombre because I'm not a tough hombre. I'm a I'm a dumb hombre. It's gonna get me in trouble. Someday. Yeah, well, no, because th- that's my that's my issue. It's like we don't know who has a gun now. Yeah, we don't know who's gonna just like go, you know, just uh, off the rails on us if we say something decently, you know, with integrity, with dignity, you know. Pick up your garbage, please. Right. And then that they won't then, you know, knife us to death. True, true. You know. And it's problematic. Like, it, it happens so much. Uh, and then we also have some of the homeless that sometimes sleep in our building, and we have to, we ask them not to. And it's not because they're sleeping there. And, I mean, that is problematic. But really what's worse is that they're urinating on our front steps. They're defecating on our front steps. They're using needles in our front steps and leaving them behind. And our general public needs to walk by that to get to our office. Well, isn't a solution to that, for instance, all right, then put a put a bunch of porta potties. So because, they tried that. Uh-huh. They tried that during the pandemic. And what happened? It didn't work. Why not? Because it ended up being a place for them to shoot up and sleep. So then that says, okay, that's taking care of that first problem of they need a place to go to the bathroom. Correct. They also need now the porta potties come with that those water things where you can wash your hands sure. and brush your teeth. So that's good yeah. for hygiene. But then that shows if they're sleeping there, then they need a place a place to sleep. And if they're shooting up, I mean, I was at McDonald's yesterday, right there in front of your yeah. the War Memorial, uh, and there was this guy, and he was so zoned out on right 
fentanyl or yeah. something. He was, and all I can think of, oh my goodness, that's somebody's child. Right. That is somebody, and he was probably abandoned. He was, you know, maybe he was a veteran. Right. You know, it's just like, it. We we have to have compassion for people who are in the extremes of needing help. But I feel like what happens in society is we have generational, like your great grandmother was on welfare, your grandmother was on welfare, yeah. your mother, you are, your father, and then the father disappears so that the mother can get welfare benefits because yeah. the way the law, the policies are made, which is stupid. Right. And then the policy. Well, we know this. We've talked about this. Then if you are on welfare, if you if you want to work. You yeah, can't make more than a certain amount, yeah, otherwise. Yeah, we're talking about that—the cliff effect. Yeah, yeah and it, and we, and it's a real thing, and we all know about it, and it doesn't change. Yeah, there's there's a bunch to unpack there, like starting with like heroin users. You know, um, it's almost always, and I say I say that with great confidence, almost always that are homeless are usually heroin users in this area, and there's a good reason for that. There's a really good reason for that. They have access. So, you know, when you look at the homeless that are out there now, these are not Holyoke residents. These aren't people that were living in Holyoke and somehow fell out of housing for one reason or another. These are people who migrate here from other communities or from other places because they have the accessibility to heroin, they have accessibility to needles, and they can panhandle to raise money for their heroin. So you really, when you meet your hierarchy of needs, in this case is, you know, finances and, and drugs, this is where you go. You know, you know, the fire needs oxygen, a combustible material, and a, you know, and, and fuel. So it's like, if you remove one of those things, you no longer have a fire. So here we have to remove one of those components. How do we do that? By pissing off a lot of people. And that means doing what? Close down the needle exchange. What happens there? I don't know what happens there. Well, people will call us uncompassionate, unloving, want us to spread disease. I, I love the idea of the needle exchange. I know its intent and I agree with it, but we've had enough time to measure the, the, the side effects to the community based off of it. I would be much happier if the needle exchange program had serialized needles, and they were like serial number five through 20 we gave to this person. So when we go pick them up off the street, we know who's not taking care of their needles, mm -hmm. right? Because personally, I don't care that you want to shoot up. Good for you. Mm -hmm. Do your thing, your life. But mm -hmm. once it impacts someone else, mm -hmm. like a child walking by that needle, mm -hmm. I have a problem with it at that point. Mm -hmm. So there's no accountability in the needle exchange program as far as, I mean, there is. I'm just saying it could be better. Um, well, sure. Or it, stop panhandling somehow. Well, you, that's which like is a, almost impossible. That's like a age that's been always happening. Yeah, it's almost but, impossible. But um, that's really interesting of, okay, you have a really good intent with the needle exchange. And then you also need to be more you have to monitor much better what's happening with those needles right and but then people who are addicted to drugs and i can speak on that because i'm an addict yeah if they will not actively taking drugs now but we'll do just about anything to get that sure. drug no absolutely and so you can't so you can't like say hey man i found five of your needles at whichever park and don't do that. You know, they're not in a headspace. No, I think what happened, so you would hope that you can make them accountable. Like now you don't get needles from us anymore. They'll find somewhere else to get needles. So then they'll go to another community. They'll go to another community where there is free needles because at least in their conscience they're worried about getting clean needles. Um, 
but the needle exchange was put there to sort of divert and slow down the the exchange of diseases, right, from intravenous AIDS, uh, HIV. Yeah. So yeah, but the unintended consequence is what right. now we're we're not dealing with holio heroin addicts anymore. We're dealing with people from all over the place. And they end up underneath our bridges, they end up near our parks, and it's like, okay. I'm not bashing homeless people and I'm not bashing addicts. But I'm definitely in the mo- in the mode of tough love. There's a reality to people's actions and, and, and they need to be accountable. You wanna do needles? You wanna shoot up? Fine. Go somewhere private. Go find a place. Don't do it behind a school. Don't do it. Your life. Live it the way you want. But don't impact other people's lives negatively. That's but all. where but if you if you're if you're an addict and you need, you know, and you're and you're and you're buying this stuff to shoot up. Where is there a private place in Holyoke to go? There's no private place. I mean, no, there really isn't. Which, which sparks another whole conversation because mm-hmm. there are places around the world that have like, like a bar, mm-hmm. literally a bar where people go shoot up. Yeah. And, um, for some people that might seem ridiculous, but we get people get drunk every day at a bar. That's right. And we have a crap load of them in the city. That's right. It, alcohol is a drug. So that it need, there needs to be like this this. The policies, it's what you're saying, and I and, I'm, and I think I'm and I believe I'm agreeing with you, is that we have to be so much more forward, not just forward thinking, but really put that into action, sure. and be fearless. And it's like, oh, you're going to be called a racist. Okay, well then respond to that. Fine. Say, what's your response to being called a racist because right. you want to do X thing? Right. And it's not based on race. It's not based on ethnicity. It's it's based on community. Right. The, the health of a community. And I mean, so if Longmeadow is at this extreme, as is Northampton, sure. as is Amherst, a, then, you know, Greenfield has a big problem with um, a, people addicted. Right. Oh, wait, I can see your eyes are glazing over. No. You're tired. No, okay. no. We're going to end I'm the just, podcast. No, I'm processing information. Oh, Leave okay. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't work as fast as you think. <laughs> Okay, because you're saying Longmeadow and Amherst. I'm thinking, you know, Amherst and Northampton do have like uh, housing options and stuff like that. I don't know what their needle exchange programs are like. They don't have the same amount of, you know, I don't think combined the city of 29,000 and Amherst that I think is less. I'm not sure when the students are gone. Oh, yeah. Um, They don't have as much uh, subsidized housing as Holyoke has. Oh, yeah. That's a whole other. Yeah. The housing or as things. many agencies, yeah. you know. The I mean, yeah, they thing. have UMass, which is a nonprofit. They're they're doing the pilot program. Yeah, I am paying lieu of taxes, payment in lieu of taxes. I am a fan, and I don't know if um, economically this makes sense, or for community development if it makes sense. But I'm a fan that every time we have a a building that we we can tear down, that we do that, and in its place, and in its place, you build a a house, whether mm-hmm. it's a two family, three or one, mm-hmm. build a house. Because I believe that there's real, you know, we talk about social determinants to health. Mm-hmm. And I believe that having a fam- three families living in one location is better than having 50. Mm-hmm. Right? Because when you live in a building with 50 Fulanos and their family, and one of them is having a bad day and doing craziness, everyone else, ex- everyone else is, is exposed to that. Mm-hmm. That's 50 other families that have to deal with that. Yeah, and there are buildings here where uh, there are needles in the stairways. There are people- it's terrible urinating in the stairways and i that's a good idea to build housing far far with for less people not as many people in a building it's and also i mean where or make another park just make another park make a nice park 
put a house or two houses there, make a nice park, make plant trees. Um, it's you know, Detroit is, is, I think, a good example. You know, they, Detroit fell apart as a city because the car industry, the auto industry fell apart. And they've been rebuilding uh, as they've been tearing down houses that have been abandoned. They've right. also been, okay, let's create a park. Let's, let's do something with this that is healthy for the, the community. community. Right. And instead, if for lack of money, this city, as all of, a lot of other communities, doesn't have the budget to tear down all these buildings I mean, it's the same philosophy with high schools. I don't know why high schools have more than a thousand students. <laughs> I believe that high schools—I mean, if any school should have at maximum two hundred students, maximum. So if that means you're using a lot more buildings right. to teach the 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 youth, then that's what you're doing. But then they're not one of a thousand; they're one of two hundred, and it's a healthier community. Right. What are your thoughts? I think that. Um as far as schooling goes, we have to start measuring the success and the marketability of the students that we're putting out into the public. Uh, what does that mean? Well, are we producing a bunch of kids that are only capable of earning $15 an hour? Mm -hmm. Or are we producing kids that have master's and PhD type intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's going to dictate the future progress of our community, mm -hmm. especially for those who stay here. So it's like you build a bunch of worker bees who can only earn so much money throughout their lifetime, they're stuck. They're going to be here forever and ever and ever. Um, and they'll be stuck in this cycle, and the next generation is going to be stuck in that cycle too. So higher expectations, uh, real vision, real exposure to people who are, who are doctors, who are aviators, who are air traffic controllers. Let me tell you, piloting, air traffic control, nursing those three jobs right there can yield you over six figures a year with minimal education wow nursing you can get through with a two-year program if you want to well to be a registered nurse to be a registered nurse yep and i don't know like when i was in dean they were doing like an lpn program it's like, yeah well, why bother with that why not yeah. teach them the yeah no go higher why not mm -hmm. teach them the curriculum to get them yeah to exactly level? westfield mm -hmm. westfield has a program where kids can get uh, their mechanics license on an airplane. Mm -hmm. Now they get, there's, it's called the A&P, airframe and power plant. They'll have enough time in high school to get one or the other. But now they have a license to go nationwide and be a mechanic on aircraft. And we're teaching kids how to be regular mechanics, which mm -hmm. is a great career. Yeah, no. But it's also like, let's expand how we're thinking. Let's well, we also don't have enough plumbers or carpenters or handy people in the city as in other great, cities. Great careers And too. those are great careers uh and yeah that you know i never thought about that who when people graduate from high school what what are their opportunities whether it's to continue their education to to a phd level or to become a pilot right. or a mechanic I, or you know i go down and i bark down the the aviation side quite a bit aviation the aerospace industry is pretty vast right you can be how many people do we know with Toyota or Honda Civics with systems in them and, you know, they, they, they installed radios and they wired up speakers? Well, same theory applies in the aircraft. Mm -hmm. Electrical theory is electrical theory. Mm -hmm. You could be making $75, $80, $90 an hour working on an aircraft doing mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Instead of working on a Honda, now you're working on a Boeing. Mm -hmm. 
we're flanked by two military bases. We have mm-hmm. we have Westover Air Force Base, a reserve base with mm-hmm. with civilian contractors on there. Mm-hmm. Then you have Barnes Airfield that has civilian, you know, you know, you have a bunch of companies out there that that, that have job opportunities. And you also have the military there, which you could work for as a civilian. Bradley International Airport, Northampton Airport. There's plenty of places, and we're not feeding that that industry at all in Holyoke. Why not? Because the conversation is not being re- received. Mm. I've tried a couple of times to talk about aviation and bringing mm-hmm. it to the schools mm-hmm. and, and getting kids involved in the aviation industry. Mm-hmm. It was an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. It was an uphill battle, and I don't know why exactly, but um, we should be. I don't know. I mean, I think this is a question. Certainly, these are questions, conversations to have with the school's chief, Anthony Soto. uh, I understand that they want to raise their graduation rate, but what does that mean? Like, what does it mean if you have 100 people graduating from 12th grade and 60 of them are going to end up having a career at fast food joints? Right. which pays very little, which means that they're going to be on public assistance. Right. There's a real-world me- real world measurement of, great, you, you graduated more, mm-hmm. but what, what's their earning potential? Mm-hmm. Did we just graduate, you know, 90% of kids who now can work at, you know, fast food for the rest of their life, like you said. Like, yeah. We need to measure that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I, I mean, Westfield, I think, has it right. They're feeding kids into career fields from high school. Mm-hmm. From high school to Bombardier mm-hmm. to Sikorsky mm-hmm. to Gulfstream. Mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about because I'm such a plane fanatic. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about yeah. when you say those, those, those names. Este, but for the people who don't know, we're talking about aircrafts. We're talking about helicopters. We're talking about jets. Yeah, we're talking about ma- manufacturers of, of all the world's... All the a- parts. Air- aircrafts, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it also is like... Uh, how do you think those seats get designed on the airplanes? There are people who work on that. Right. It doesn't just happen magically that, oh, we just put some seats. There's so many associated There's, fields with air, uh, you know, with flying. I go, you know, I drive through Holyoke and I, and I just always draw a parallel with um, like the aviation stuff. Like how many uh, auto body shops do I go by? Mm-hmm. I, I, just all of them. There's so many of them around. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, you could be painting an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. You could be painting an airplane. You could be doing sheet metal work on an airplane. That pays mm-hmm. a lot of money, by the mm-hmm. way. You could be upholstering airplanes. You could start your own upholstery business. Wow. I wish I knew how to sew. I'm telling you, there's... Remember, my, I had a Cherokee 6 for a while, a six-passenger airplane. And, you know, it was upward to $15,000 to reupholster my airplane wow. professionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fancy stuff, really nice. Yeah, seat. sure. You know, I didn't have $15,000, so I'll just keep the cloth stuff. That we <laughs> <laughs> I'll just put the sheep, was it sheepskin uh, covers yeah. on it? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, yeah, I think we need to aim higher. We can aim, aim higher and, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm speaking as a person who, you know, I still haven't finished my undergrad. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk about this. This is one of my, like, I'm very uh, self-deprecating sometimes, but it's also like I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I've never finished college, I've never finished uh, my degree, and I'm. And yet, you are a very accomplished person, very highly accomplished person. You, the work that you do, the fact that you're a pilot. Jesus, very few people know how to be a pilot. You conquered your fear. Yeah, that's. By becoming a pilot. Probably my biggest success. Yeah. I wonder how many people do that sort of thing. Say, I'm so scared of this, so I'm going to learn it. I don't think too many people do. Yeah. 
Which is why you have people stuck in careers so that they hate. Yeah, <laughs> this is why you're accomplished because you opened, you expanded. You you said earlier at the beginning of our conversation that when you became a pilot, it opened up worlds. The whole you world. already opened up worlds when you decided to be a pilot. That was you already saw that world. Oh, well, thank you. I feel special now. You are special. <laughs> you are very special. And how can we help other people also be special? when well, they leave high school, whether they don't want to be in high school anymore for whatever reasons, or they do graduate. My whole thing is mm -hmm. like growing up, like I grew up in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I'm a product of the city through and through, right? Born in Puerto Rico and my parents decided to come here for some darn reason, which I'd rather be in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Weather's much better. Yeah. But what I saw, what, as we're growing up, what we see around us is what we design in our brain as norm, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. seeing the addicts, in a bus stop, passed out with their cart, you know, with their carrito right there, yeah. and their needles. That was normal. Mm -hmm. People getting shot at, very normal. It wasn't until I left this, you know, for the service that I realized, like, it's not. <laughs> yeah, Nantucket is not like this. No, not at all. Long Meadow's not like this. Not at all. Northampton's no. not like this. But we, we as adults and people who run the city have to understand that we're building that norm for someone else's image. Mm. And this is... You know, I'm 44, I'll be 45 at the end of the year. This has been with me my whole life. Mm -hmm. You know, through therapy and everything else, it's like I'm always, I'm always ready to fight for some reason. I'm always on the defensive. I'm ready to protect myself. I hate bullies. Those are all products of my childhood. That's a product of living in the city, right? Because if someone saw you being weak, you know, they, they bullied you. So we, we as adults at some point need to take responsibility and accountability for that. As adults work in government, making policies. 100%, yeah. 100%. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you have to make those unpopular decisions. Yeah. Yeah. You got to po power through the unpopular decisions. Yeah. And, and explain yourself. It's like, why are you doing this? This is why. And it's not coming from a place of hate. It's not coming from a place of prejudice. It's coming actually from a place of trying to build a healthy community for the three-year-olds. Sure. As much as for the 50 and the 80 and plus olds. Uh, so that everybody can be as healthy as possible you imagine, emotionally and physically imagine growing up and, and you're living in a building with 50 other families and you guys are just poor mm -hmm. right you're just poor your normal is what's around you and what they see you and someone says no more we no longer going to have this many low-income housing here so we're going to take your family we're going to move you to long meadow mm -hmm. i'd much rather be poor in long meadow than be poor in Holyoke. why because in Long Meadow, I'm gonna be surrounded by people who have more vision than me, whose norm is different than me, whose image of what can be uh, attained is bigger than what I, what I can manifest in my own brain. Because growing up, my, till this day I remember being told, hey, get a job at Ampad, get an apartment on Sergeant Street in your car and you're good. Mm -hmm. that was What's Ampad? Ampad was a paper company. Here. Okay. You know? So it's basically, these are your steps. Yeah, this is what you do. This is how you succeed. And you came up with other sets I, of steps. But I, my son was the, the, the pivotal moment in my life. Him coming to this world is what changed, by accident, mm -hmm. what I wanted to do with myself. Mm -hmm. you know? And it was hard because to this day, the insecurities are still there. The thoughts that I had as a child are still there today as an adult. Like, I'm not capable. I'm not you know, able to do those things. Now. Yeah, this uh, a lot of us are haunted by our insecurities sure. on a daily basis. And, and, and I think that's really good for youth to know because 
if they know that adults also are haunted, then they can feel, okay, it's normal for me to have insecurities. It's normal for me. But I need to work at overcoming that instead of just staying in there, whether that's counseling, therapy, whatever it is. And I, I really, you know, something I just heard in this conversation that I hadn't considered before a lot of times when we talk about Long Meadow, and I'm not saying you and me, just sort of like in general, people who talk about Long Meadow or Northampton, is with this sense of, you know, they're yeah. beneath us. And they're not. I mean, I have problems with Northampton. Yeah. So those, those liberals <laughs> there really get on my nerves. Okay. But, it, and I know they have good intentions. Right. But um, I think what I'm hearing is that we should aspire to have the kind of, like, to have their kind of normal. Sure. Rather than the kind of normal that we have here in Holyoke. Well, and the other thing too is like, you know, again, when I was in Long Meadow working there, culture shock was real. Mm-hmm. I could not believe the things that these people were complaining about. You know, we we like would what? have we we would have um, weekly uh, department head meetings, and so you know, DPW's there, the police is there. You know, DPW be like, well, you know, Mrs. Smith was upset that Mr. Johnson left his tree leaves around his tree no. belt. And I'm like, WTF, really? This is what we're complaining about over here? Or, or, or you know, Mr. Johnson left his camper out in his driveway and, and it could be seen by, by public access road. And I'm like, holy hell. But, but what I ended up learning, and, and through my boss at the time, who actually did a really good job of, of explaining to me, is like, these are people who've made decisions in their lives to get to where they are. Not all of them were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And the, and the more you stuck around and met people, there are people from Chicopee and Springfield and from Holyoke, people who've, you know, through life made transitions and made choices to get to the point where they can move to a place like Longmeadow, mm-hmm. right? And they're paying a pretty penny for that. Mm-hmm. So they're very active mm-hmm. when they're like, hey, we want to do a new school mm-hmm. or, hey, we want to do a new DPW or whatever. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're involved. Mm-hmm. And because they have real, like, tangible, like, you know, they contributed to this and people want to see that there's a good product at the end mm-hmm. where when you have a community, like I was just looking up at the census when we were talking, it's like 39% of our population, well, 39% of our housing stock is homeowner occupied. It's only 39%. Well, according to the last census. Yeah. That's dismal. Yeah. Let's think about anything that we don't own. Do we care about it much? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ever rent a car? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not my well, car. <laughs> no, I know. Well, there, there I have a different view because when I have things that are not mine, I, I take better care of them. Sure. I don't want to like, and that's sort of, I don't know what. But you're also someone who, who owns things. Yeah. So. I own where I live. Right. But if you never did, mm-hmm. if you never, how many times have we seen um, buildings in the winter with the windows wide open? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Heat at a hundred or whatever, and yeah. windows open. You know, vice versa. Like there's, yeah. there's there's all these things that happen. It's because we don't own it. Yeah. And I think that there's a root. Don't care what you. I, I don't care what anyone has to say. There's a real factor there when you own something and you're responsible and accountable for it. Yeah. You technically. But technically then we have to help people own it because Absolutely. there's some pe- with the disadvantages that a lot of Jackson people are. Jackson Parkway. Okay. Jackson Parkway, perfect example. Great program. Mm-hmm. Right, people own their properties. They were low income. There's federal money came in for that, and that place. Are those the houses that are by the high school? Yeah, they're so it's so beautiful there. That's been and like, people take great care. That's been like that for over twenty years now. Right. We need more of that. Yes, more of that. I cringe when we talk about providing and and 
you know, uh, to be open here, I, you know, I was on the homelessness committees in, in Massachusetts. I was on a veteran homeless committee. I was in a equal protection for minorities, you know, all these different committees that they make up within these committees. And it's mm-hmm. like, look, man, their answer was dump all the homeless people in Holyoke and Springfield. Mm-hmm. Shame on Holyoke for not having an open, you know, emergency housing, whatever. But what people don't know is that we have tons of scatter sites. Scatter sites. Yeah. These are homes that people rent out to the state or different agencies to house people who are homeless. Oh, and I didn't know that. And, and we need to be clear is that homelessness and in 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 addressing it is really about the long term. It, it's supposed to be homelessness is supposed to be a short period of time. Right. Not your status quo. What I don't understand is the Jesus is like, so if if we, the taxpayers, got money from the federal government, state government, to take those open plots of land and make more homes like what you were saying, um, Jackson Parkway. Parkway. And then for people who just can't, they can't own a home because they don't have the mental capacity. They're addicted to drugs. Like the people who they're, they have like serious mental health issues. Why can't we then take some of those empty spaces and make a you know build a bunch of individual tiny homes and have you know social workers who work twenty four seven around the clock you know my, you know just being there, este, right. seven days a week twenty four hours a day because these are people who actually need Holyoke used to have a place called Maple House where people with well, Maple Street where people with um, mental health severe mental health issues lived. And there were social workers there 24-7 to help them because there are people like that in our society. Sure. Not sure. everybody who's homeless. Yeah, I came across that same problem when I was trying to address veteran housing. Mm-hmm. And I was a big, you know, I was championing it. I was all about it. And I'm raising my fist here for those of you, you know. Who yeah, don't for the, have visual, the visual, Jesus yeah. <laughs> is raising his yeah, fist. It's like I was all about it. Yeah. And the one thing that I um, came, up, came to find out quickly is that you need a developer or a builder, someone willing to build the project, but then you also need someone to run the project. And most people won't build unless there's a good return on their investment on the build. Right, and then I don't wanna like, but I'm just gonna say it. A lot of these agencies that build subsidized housing, if you saw, and you can, if you see the salaries of their executive directors and their deputy directors and their uh, chief operating officers, this is a money-making proposition for them. 100%. This is, I, I, they're called a nonprofit, but this is a for-profit business that somehow magically all the numbers get equal yeah. at the end of the fiscal year, so it yeah. comes off as a nonprofit. Yeah, I think um, believing that like altruism is existing within these companies is not, <laughs> is, is a far no. stretch. Yeah. You know, the, the CEO is not going to go and say, hey, you know what, just give me 70000 a year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's not what happens at no, all. They're, and, they're and just squeezing every penny for themselves. And we see this. I see it on the state side with other, mm-hmm. um, well, you know, some veteran nonprofits that have mm-hmm. pretty well-paid um, executive people who rub elbows with those in the state mm-hmm. house and rub elbows with those in the federal and our in our Congress. And it's like, you look at their nine nineties, and I and I really want people to go out there and start the nine nineties, the IRS uh, tax tax, forms. tax form that lists the the it's like a profit and loss statement almost yeah for the the agency financial and then for the top officers they have to list how much money their salaries and then i've looked at 990s of some of these um housing agencies that you know oh no we just want to help 
And yeah, and then they pay the people who actually do the help so little money that then they need public assistance. Right. It's 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 not that it. Uh, I'm frustrated. Should we end the podcast and we'll continue this conversation? We can because we can I'm that. I'm like I'm just so bummed out right now it's when right. I think we, of we, we can collect our thoughts and do this again some other time. Yeah, you know. Well, that was fun. That was fun. And it was this is your podcast. So you have to I, say goodbye to people. Well, I mean, I don't know how to say goodbye yet. You say, I'd like to thank my guest, Natalia Munoz. <laughs> and thank you for listening. See, what if I wanted to be my co-host, Natalia Munoz? Well, I can come every time you want to your program. But... Um, no, I think that you do... You compliment me very well. Okay, well, then I'll, then I'll be on the air with you every time you want to do a <laughs> podcast. So then... But, okay, so then if I'm going to be the co-host, I'm going to say, okay, this was Got Your Six... With Jesus Pereira, I'm Natalia Munoz. Thank you for listening. We talked about everything here today. We talked about being a pilot, conquering fear, antiquated policies that actually hurt communities, don't help communities, people with antiquated views on how to run communities. And when we compare ourselves with other communities, wealthier communities, not necessarily to poo-poo them, to maybe learn from them and uh, and see how that can be helpful. We talked about the needle exchange program. Really great intention, but it creates other problems down the, down the line. We sure. talked about everything. We did. And you did a yeah. great closing, so we'll just use that. Okay. All right. See you later. See you later.